attention architects, and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. Context and Clarity has been called a community-based pro-practice masterclass for architects. It's awfully high praise, but since we began this journey back in April of 2020, we've certainly grown into a community of small firm architects, all focused on what matters most to their success. And by the way, it doesn't matter if you're the employee of a firm that's dreaming of going out on your own, or you've owned your own firm for 26 years. There's something here for everyone. And that's where you come in. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Context and Clarity Podcast. Every week, we have a conversation with an expert or a thought leader on things that matter most to the success of architects just like you. Then we go backstage with someone from our community and we talk about what we learned, what our biggest takeaways were, and how we're going to apply what we heard to our own businesses. In this episode, we talked to Declan Keefe. He's a co-founder and co-developer at CoEverything. To be honest, before we got started, I wasn't sure what to think about Declan and CoEverything's approach to development. I do think it helps to go back to the beginning of his story, the story of an accidental firm owner while he was still in his third year of architecture school. What I realized during our conversation is that as different as his story begins, Declan thinks very differently maybe more deeply than most of us do, about the process of development and what community engagement really means. You'll have to listen to the conversation, and I'd also say go back and watch the video of our entire conversation and see if you're challenged or maybe inspired by Declan's story. For this episode, our guests backstage are Isra Banks, architect and founder of Trivec Architects and faculty at the Boston Architectural College and by Jay Caroli, the principal architect at Great Blue Heron Studio Architects and the managing member of real estate development company Place LLC. Jay's in Morrisville, Vermont. 
I'm curious to hear their takeaway. So let's go backstage and listen in as my co-host Catherine McPhail, Isra, Jay, and I all talk about our conversation with Declan Keefe. Isra and Jay, welcome backstage. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Catherine. It's always a pleasure. That's great to have you. And I want to know, I mean, I, I think this, you know, my, my head's sort of cracking a little bit here. My brain needs to expand a little bit to get my head wrapped around all of um, what Declan was talking about and, and how they're doing things at co-everything. So um, what, what do you guys think about that? I know you've got some vested interest in some of the types of projects and, and uh purposes even that he was talking about what are your takeaways from from the conversation oh, go ahead <laughs> um i think we've been talking about changing how the profession is set either the, the delivery method design bit built or either if it's integrated or if it's going to be design built or owner building uh i'm a big fan of uh architect developer and then a big fan of serving the community and uh, and uh to tie it back to uh mike gerber uh, when he said someone need to do something different something that wasn't done before and serve more people and revive our profession and i think uh that's a that's a great example of uh, innovation in, in the architectural practice because it's what we learn in school this is the gap what we learn in school is very hard to implement and practice because we we are under the control but that's well the story of every architect we're under the control of the stakeholders which is mostly the one who controls the money and in many cases they're the developer even though the city could be a partner, but that the final say would be to the developer. And, and as architects, we are trained to make these decisions. So uh, getting a balance or getting a bigger say in the development side of things uh, would, would facilitate our, our job or what we've been trained, what we've been trained to do. So yeah, definitely that's innovation. Definitely that's one of the routes that our profession needs to head or some of us. I, I tell my students, either you become design uh, design and built or um, owner and built, uh, owner and architect, or you, you probably want to do all three. That's really good recall, by the way. As <laughs> mentioned, Michael E. Gerber, who was our guest a couple of months ago now. He's the author of uh, E-Myth, E-Myth Revisited, and the whole franchise, or at least co-author of the whole franchise. Um, and uh, he did challenge the audience to think differently about um, how we practice architecture. That's, that's a really great point. Jay, what, what was your takeaway from this conversation with Declan? So my initial takeaway is that everything he's doing sounds like a nonprofit to me. That what, what he's doing 
is is what I'm doing in nonprofits. I'm I keep creating nonprofits trying to do what he's doing um, in business. Uh, you know, um, providing housing, providing communities to thrive, coming together and, and cooperating. I I I didn't see another way to do it, and so I you know he's um, he's running around my head now, and I have a lot to lot to think about. How do I? Um, right. So that's my mindset. My mindset is there's no way to make a living doing this. And so I'll make a living practicing architecture the way I know how. Um, and then in, in my spare time, I'll give back in these other ways that I'm passionate about. And he's said, no, this is my passion and this is how I'm going to practice architecture. And I found it inspiring. The, the part that I thought was really brilliant was the, the financing, um, having the neighbors have an actual stake in it, a literal piece of the um, development. When we got to everything, we're saying there's there's still a stakeholder that's missing in bringing things together internal, and that's the community and uh, the other people who are impacted by architecture. It's the neighbors. It's, it's the folks who are part of uh, the the neighborhood community groups who are impacted by this and come and have an opinion, but the the zoning process doesn't really give them an actual say. And so a lot of architects come in and are placating to community as opposed to actually bringing them in. And when we say bring them in, what, what we are trying to do more and more is not just have um, participatory design processes, which we, we are, are totally behind, but actually having the community have an ownership. So investing real money, investing real time and being an actual percentage owner or, or potentially a democratic cooperative owner of a real estate development project. And then of course you're gonna bring them into the design process and hear what they have to say. Of course you're gonna bring them in far enough to understand the economic and cost constraints that we have as uh, on the construction side and development side of things. As stakeholders or shareholders, they would be able to uh, have more of a say of who would be in the development, what kind of companies or, you know, I thought that was really a really great idea because, um, yeah, why not kind of crowdfund it like that and have the people who live around this new development have a real interest and investment in it. So that was pretty cool, I thought. That's one of the things that really has piqued my interest about what they're doing is it's it's community engagement on a level that probably none of us has ever actually participated in. Um, I, I graduated from Ball State. I teach class at Ball State, and and we have a through the Masters of Urban Development. You know, there's a group that goes out and does community engagement. It's not the same thing. Right? It is not. Um, is not what he's talking about. Um, so th that's that's really, you know, like you said, Jay Declan's running around in your head. I mean, that's that's one of the ways that he got into my head as well. And and you mentioned, you know, Jay, you were talking about, you know, everything he said. Everything he said sounded like a not for profit. And one of the questions that I had that I didn't ask was, what you know, what's the makeup, what's the, the, uh, the business entity of co everything, because that's exactly what I was thinking is, are you running this as a nonprofit or a not-for-profit? 
and it made me think back. So I think all you guys know what my, when I teach my pro practice class, we do a project and the semester culminates basically in shark tank. So the students have to pitch their ideas to, to the sharks of shark tank and several of the uh, projects that were pitched and they have to come up with a business entity and, and a business plan and all this several, several of the ideas were pitched as nonprofits and the sharks were just, <laughs> the sharks were circling. There was blood in the water. They kept telling the students, you have got to find a way to turn this into a profitable business that you can, you can, you know, it can be about equity and architecture. It can be about whatever, but it's easier to actually run this, to find a way to run this, to get investment or, or, you know, whatever, wherever the money comes from as a for-profit entity, than to continually rely on a government subsidy, subsidy or a program or something, something like that. And that was a real challenge for a lot of the students, but I, I went exactly where you did. Jay, um, when I was listening to Declan talk, it sounds like this is a nonprofit until he started talking about the different ways that different agreements that they put together on the development side. And he, he mentioned a couple and I've actually done that before in my career. We, we traded um, a project, essentially project design, design for equity we took payment on the back end, you know, to enable a project, uh, you know, things like that. And so when he said that, that really resonated with me. And, and I started thinking that that was actually very lucrative relative to just charging a fee, so to speak, as, as an architect. I wonder um, if, as he says, you know, he's thinking differently. They're thinking differently about the way that they operate, the way that they do these projects, maybe they're, maybe they have found a way to make these profitable. He did say that you had to have some money saved up somehow. So it doesn't seem like everybody's in the position to not get paid for a year or two or, um, and it, I mean, I get it going after your passion is, is you would do that without getting paid. And I think we've all been there. So how do we balance that? He really is investing heavily, and so you know if if the bottom line is is um, is prosperity um, or one of them, then then it takes money to to make money. You know, is that the idea? Or um, and I you know I don't know if I'm getting away from his vision by talking about money, but but it but it is. Um, why a lot of us are in the entree architect community um, is because uh, you know, I, I think the motto is profit first, uh, right? <laughs> is that the motto? I thought it was live, <laughs> love, learn as a motto. Something. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Profit well, the, first the, is just our favorite book. Yeah, yeah. The idea is to build build a better business that allows you to to be the architect that you want to be. Um, you know, I think it's that, that might be the rub, right? It's pursuing the passion, which I think we all ought to be doing, you know, from a, maybe that's a romanticized idea. I don't know, but, uh, what would it be like, right? If we were all able to just 
work on passion projects, but then how do we, how do you turn that into the business, right? A business that actually delivers that prosperity. It, you know, and I'll go back to, you know, what's why, how Declan or why Declan's running around in my head is just the deep level of community engagement and bringing the, the community in. Like you said, he's the community or state, they're stakeholders. We always call them that. We always call them stakeholders, but they're, they're shareholders in some instances. Um, and so that prosperity, it's, it's a triple bottom line business, but it seems to me that every project is triple bottom line on a different level. Maybe, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but there's, there's a lot of depth here. There was a lot of density to the conversation and it, he was offering a lot of information because I think every question for me just asked and just opened more questions. Every answer to every question had opened more questions. And I, but I, I want to, I, I really like what he said about engaging the community in a way that they can break that cycle of, of, um, of home ownership, you know, that, um, that if your parents weren't um, privileged in the 50s, that the, ch- that, that the chances are that you're buying a home now are very slim, right? So my parents um, were homeowners and I'm a homeowner. Um, and, and, and to be able to co- go into a community and break that by saying, you know, you can invest a small amount into this larger project and hopefully there's a return on that investment that they can then, you know, come out of that with, with a, a path forward. Um, sounds like a great model and, and a great, just a great vision, a great path. What does it take to actually democratically or cooperatively uh, or even just collaboratively work on real estate development projects? And what could that mean? What could it look like? And how would you partner with folks? And uh, because Place There Was a Worker Co-op presented the idea to them, they were more interested in staying focused in line with their high performance and energy efficiency work. So they continued on down that path. And um, me and uh, my current co-founder of CoEverything left Place Taylor to found CoEverything to really focus on this um, real estate development that could be owned by the community in, in a more cooperative way. So the project is called Obi, I think, OBY, which is, I guess, the antithesis of NIMBYism. So not in my backyard, but Obi is yes in my backyard or something like that. And it, I believe it's based in the San Francisco Bay Area and, you know, the West Coast as we know a lot of areas in the country but especially in the west coast they have some real housing deficits some real uh, housing issues out there um, the article uh, there's actually an article in fast company magazine talking about this project and i th- i think the article is from about 2018 and so that's almost four years ago probably at the time of publication now it cited a deficit in that area of of something along, along the magnitude of 700,000 housing units. And so, you know, I, I think maybe there's some acceptance because it's such a dire situation. Um, 
here in Indianapolis, I don't, I don't think it takes gets any traction at all. This is a very different area. It's a very different economy, uh, which is is part of that, right? Um, not that we don't have housing shortages or, or issues like that, but it's a completely. I mean, we don't ADUs, tiny houses, for the most part, is not even a thing here. It's not even a point of conversation here. So I I think it's a much harder sell here. Um, you know, talk about pain points or whatever you want, but, um, but, but the model is really fascinating. So basically, Hey, I need, I want to, I want a 99 year lease on a footprint in your backyard that of course is then attached to the deed of your home. So when your home sells, the lease continues, um, I think a number that was referenced was as the homeowner, you may theoretically, you may get $500 a month for that lease. You know, so, so you, you're deriving value from that. Then of course you can gets passed on to the next homeowner if there's a next, but somehow in, in this, in this model, they're able to offer rents of these places at 30% of the income of the, uh, of the person living there, of, of the person that's going to live in the, I'm going to call it a tiny house, the backyard house, I think is what they call it. So that's, that's, that's sort of their affordability formula for the person in the, in the backyard house, in the tiny house. And then on the other side of the equation, the homeowner with the 99, you know, that's, that's, leasing that little plot of land for 99 years is getting, you know, $500 a month or something like that. Um, you know, in, in return for that, for that lease of that piece of land out there. Wendy in the chat, I think it was Wendy, cause I, I think she's in Western mass. Um, you know, it's had said, you know, I'm in a, in a rural community. I don't, I don't have the same population, the de- same density. I don't see how I can do that. And I, that was, that came to my mind too. How do I, how do I do this where I am? If, you know, the population of Vermont is 600,000, that's, that's the population of Boston. And, and maybe I'm using it as an excuse because I, I just need to think deeper. And I, and I think, I think, Declan has thought deeply about this stuff. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Maybe this is along the same lines. I still contend that if you're an architect that primarily does residential work, this will depend obviously on who your ideal client is. But if you could figure out a way to finance your fees, you know, you figure out a, a different project financing that all of a sudden that changes the perception of the architect, the arc, the cost, quote unquote, cost of the architect instead of investment, um, you know, the architect's fees with the non 1% homeowner, the non 1% client, because I, I still think that's the biggest barrier. You know, if you're designing a home, if, if you have someone that can afford a $200,000 home, which is a pretty decent home in Indianapolis. Obviously economics are different all over the, all over the country. But if you've found someone that wanted a new home for $200,000, there's no way 
that they are hiring an architect in Indianapolis because you're going to say, well, my fee is going to be X. And they're going to say, well, my, my budget is 200, right? It's not 200 plus X. And so I, I think, you know, these kinds of conversations where, you, where we're thinking differently about how these things are structured are game changers. Yeah, you know, when he was talking about how we should think about what we're passionate about, and then I was thinking about our conversation that we had last Friday when people had these ideas that they would do if they didn't need to make money. How I don't know, just maybe think of that. Like we all we all do have things that we would like to do. We are passionate about what we're putting off until we have, I don't know what. Yeah, your question, Catherine, was what would you do if you if you had all the money you needed and you, you, and you could do anything you wanted? And pretty much everybody answered that they would build, um, that they would build public housing almost. I mean, there was, that was pretty, pretty much across the board. That was a big answer from a lot of the people in the group. Mm-hmm. Yep. A lot of people said that, but then also building um, schools to help people learn skills that they could, they could use to have their livelihood and preserve houses, old housing stock and that sort of thing. Anyway. I, I love questions like that because when you take, and, and I think this is sort of a little bit of a sad commentary on our, our uh, social situation, but when you take the need for income out of the equation and say, what would you do? I think you start to identify the huge holes that we have in our our culture and our society around us. You know, the first two things that, that you talked about were housing and, and schools. And and again, it takes me back to what Declan's talking about and just a super deep dive into community cooperation. I don't I don't even have a term for it. I don't I don't think that really really does it but a deep dive into really looking at what the community needs what the community wants how the community wants to be involved um and, and you know jay you mentioned this before the triple bottom line um, including the prosperity p of the triple b- bottom line for everybody right not not for the architect but for everybody i think that's 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 a pretty amazing pursuit. So I don't, you know, I don't know if Declan is independently wealthy. I'm guessing not, but, <laughs> but maybe somehow in his thinking, he's, he's taking that income question out of there. I was thinking um, of people who I encountered, or at least uh, the one instructor I had for the uh, real estate finance course. He used to say it's very easy to do developments. It's it's the easiest thing. It's the most profitable thing. He's pretty small because like his portfolio is still in the two million. So yeah, that it, it takes years to build that and upgrade. I think that's that's why they start with one. I, and I also wonder how the debt clean and uh, the, the co everything uh, grew that fast. Did say that he um, leverages his white male privilege. Did say that, yeah. Very open about that, and and um, you know, one more thing for me to um, make sure that I'm paying attention to that if I can use that in some way to have positive out- outcome for other communities or even in my own community. Yeah, 
well, I think that's what we need to do with our privilege. You know, if we have the privilege, we need to use that to help other people who don't. That's what I think too. So, so that we have a more equitable society, a, a more racially equitable, a a more um, environmentally sustainable and um, sort of justice-driven approach to the way in which we do work. Because the thing that gets me is uh, all of our work is really impactful. We can choose whether it has a net positive impact or not. And this is the thing that's that that has driven me from day one in the work and is that it weighs on me heavily that the work we do as architects has such a big impact. It has such a big impact on the climate. It has such a big impact on the communities in which we do work. And it has the impact on the communities in so many different ways. It's It sets trends for what else is going to be built there, which then sets trends for who's going to own it, which set trends for um, the, the wealth generation either staying with the people who have been there or new people coming in and, and getting that wealth and other people being pushed out. It sets trends for what kind of uh, commitment from the city there is to those that, that neighborhood and that work. So it's just so much impact that the work we do has. And, and when we're looking too closely at sort of just the bottom line, the financial bottom line, and we're not thinking about the the people or the planet, but instead just the prosperity side of that triple bottom line, we end up uh, having a net negative impact. It's it's more common that if we don't focus on those other things, we'll have a net negative impact with our work. And what everything was created to, to do was to try to figure out ways in which all of the work we do can have a, a net positive impact. And so when we created the firm, uh, one of the very first things we did was we created what what we called uh, the good development project standards um that's a really high bar for ourselves we can't even meet it ourselves but it's showing us sort of a long list of things that like in an ideal world we could every project would be able to do all of these things it would be able to raise people up it would raise wages it would be more democratic in the way in which we did the governing it would be carbon um, negative, you know, and so it goes down the list of people, planet and prosperity of what are the, what's the most positive of an impact we could have with our projects. It isn't a bad thing, but if I have it, then it's a way that I can help other people because I can get things more easily, um, you know, than other people. For anybody that's listening, you can go to co-everything. So coeverything.co is the website. There's a, there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack there. That that might be the place, the best place to start. We could spend two or three hours talking about this. There's there's an awful lot to unpack here. Maybe we'll have to have to bring him back. That's that is why he has been on the Entree Architect podcast four times, I believe. So you know, there's going back to the very beginning. There's a lot to unpack. Well, what did you think? Did you hear something in there that you can use in your practice today? If you were so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity Live episodes. And if you want more of the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week, give us a thumbs up and subscribe wherever you consume podcasts. If you like content like this, check out Gable Media. 
It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment, and it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know you'll find something there that interests you. You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And one last thing before you go. If the topic of today's episode is of particular interest to you, join me over on Facebook today at 4 p.m. Eastern inside the Entre Architect Community Facebook group. That's where every weekday at 4 p.m. Eastern, I host Context and Clarity Conversations, and we take topics like this, and we dig deeper. We have a conversation in real time to try to find more clarity around the things that matter most to you. So thanks for listening. I hope our time together has inspired you to think about your community and your practice and how you can support those around you. We'll be back here again next week. And in the meantime, I hope you'll join me and the Entree Architect community on Facebook today at 4 p.m. Eastern so that we can help each other find more clarity around the topics that matter most, no matter what your context is. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us. Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.